the word of the Lord. Stuart is, uh, he's exhausted from doing that reading. Back-to-back services, just he doesn't know. He's going to have to go home and take a nap. Uh, Stuart's one of our elders, thanks, Stuart. It's a powerful reading of two words. When was the, the last time that you cried? When was the last time that you cried? Think about that. Maybe this morning. When was the last time that you cried? I don't remember the first time I cried. I don't think many of us do. I'm sure my mom would tell us that I cried a lot in my first 10 years. My first formative memory of crying connected to deep sorrow was around uh, our dog, Pepper. Pepper was a miniature schnauzer, and it was my first animal. I was an only child. That explains a lot. I know, I know. And so when you have a, a dog as an only child, they kind of become your best friends. And, I, and, I, and that happened with Pepper for sure. I remember Pepper would sleep in my bed and every single night because I didn't know maybe I wouldn't wake up, he wouldn't wake up. I would get really close and whisper in his ear, you are the best dog in the entire universe. And I'd just snuggle with him and he'd lick my face with dog breath and it was awesome. <laughs> uh, one day, one of the neighborhood kids, uh, it was just an innocent mistake, uh, didn't fully close the gate to our backyard. So I went back in the yard and, and called, Pepper, Pepper, and, and you know, it was horrifying when Pepper didn't come running like Pepper normally did when I called. So we began a full canvas of the neighborhood, and quickly my worst fears were realized Pepper had run up onto a busy road and gotten hit by a car. I, uh, uh, this is a whole other story that maybe I'll tell in a different context of the power of prayer, and I began to, to pray and the vet said there was no hope, and then uh, two days later, we heard he was going to make it and be fine. I was like, vet, you don't know my God. You know? <laughs> uh, power of prayer, but also learned the power of tears, the power of tears. Uh, we, we live in a world that is not kind to crying, at least mostly. We live in what I call a grin and bear it world, or uh, you've got to have that stiff upper lip. Or we use phrases like, they cried like a baby, which suggests that only babies cry. And if you grow up and you're big and mature, uh, that you shouldn't cry. And, and I think that all of us deal with this, men or women. I, I think men, we especially deal with some of this kind of false advertising stuff that's in our culture. This kind of foolishness like, Real men don't cry, if you've heard that. I call that toxic masculinity. And it's just woven in our culture. It's a lie, gentlemen. It's a lie. I've encountered a lot of friends and a lot of people in the pastorate where they've told me, it's beyond anecdotal, that they never have seen their dad cry. And they don't say it with pride. <laughs> they don't say it like that's a good thing. With love to their dads, they probably didn't feel the space that they could cry. Uh, there are many, many, many good things about crying and weeping, especially in a world where there's so many things to cry about. Can I get an amen? amen. <laughs> what, do we, what, do we, what happens to our bodies when we cry? Um, if you're a medical professional, you can correct whatever I get wrong in my Googling Wikipedia of what happens to our bodies when we cry. Um, but I'm interested in that because as apprentices of Jesus, 
we're not like heads on a stick, we're not spirits floating around, we're in bodies. We have bodies. That's what this series that we're in is about. So as best I could understand it through my research, what happens is we encounter trauma or loss or something sad, and then our brain comes to life and activates, thank goodness. And we have this little piece of our brain called the amygdala, and that is where our fight or flight things happen. So they can actually watch your brain on a scan, and it lights up when something sorrowful or sad happens in your amygdala. And then your amygdala talks to another part of your brain called the the, the hypothalamus is this little pea-sized part of your brain that plays a really important role because it connects to and uh, kind of coordinates our automatic, autonomic nervous system. And your autonomic nervous system controls the temperature of your body, it controls whether you're hungry or not, and it controls your tears. And so when you experience sadness and loss, here's kind of what happens, doctors tell us, and we've experienced this, we all know this, that your face begins to get tight, your facial muscles begin to get tight, especially if you're fighting it. And then your nose starts to run, and then you feel a lump in your throat. They can prove all this stuff. This is happening to your body. And then it goes down into your chest and affects your breathing, then affects your heart rate. It's a full body experience. And then all floodgates break loose, and you're like, <laughs> and it's vulnerable. It's just vulnerable when it happens. I think that's why we kind of have all these misnomers and fallacies around crying when it's appropriate, when it's not. All these foolish things that I hope that we'll debunk today. I learned that we have different kinds of tears. We have three primary kinds of tears. We have reflex and basal or continuous tears. And these are tears that kind of help protect our eyes so something will get in it or they keep our eyes wet and kind of form a film that protects it. They're 98% water, those tears. But the third kind of tears we cry are what they call psychic or emotional tears, and you look at them under a microscope and they're totally different consistencies. They're not all water. Because when we're crying psychic or emotional tears, our body is literally purging toxins and purging stress and kind of making sure that our heart's in rhythm and our bodies reset and we have equilibrium. It's really, really good to cry. And there's so much to cry about that is, that is worthy, at least I think so. And yet we grew up in this world that we're told that crying is not appropriate. And if we're tough, we don't cry and we hold it in like it's some kind of character thing. It's just horrible. Psychologists will call when we, our bodies are telling us to cry and we're stopping it and we've gotten really good at this. That that's called repressive coping. Repress, and it's horrible for you. It's really, really bad. It affects your anxiety and your stress and your blood pressure and your heart rate and it causes anxiety and depression and all. It's terrible for you. We need to learn how to appropriately weep and express sadness and express sorrow. The Japanese, they, uh, their culture in Japan, they really embrace this. They embrace the body, they embrace uh, the emotion of sadness. They've had a lot in their histories, as have we. And they actually, in Japan, I don't know how, how far back this goes, but it is a popular thing right now. They have what are called crying clubs. You just join a club to cry with other people. <laughs> I, I don't know what they do. I think they sit around and watch Titanic over and over again. I, don't, I think they do watch movies. I, you know, but I thought that's fascinating. Here's an interesting fact. Of all the creatures in the world, humans 
are the only ones who cry emotional tears. And it should make all the sense in the world for those of us who follow Jesus. All the sense in the world, because we're made in the image of God. We're in a series called The Emotions of God. And we are exploring the seven primary emotions of God. At the same time, we're acknowledging that we're emotional beings, that we need to get more emotional, not less emotional, but we need to let God teach us how to get emotional, as opposed to doing it the other way around. Our series has been guided by a book called The Emotions of God by Dr. David Lamb. It's what we call our big read. And these are books that we recommend as your pastors that will help you as apprentices of Jesus go deeper into your faith. And we really believe this book will do so. We're scratching the surface here on Sundays. We send you out in the world to dig deep and make good choices to go in your journey with Jesus. So this book will help you. So I don't know how many copies left. We've gone through two purchases now. So you guys are buying them, which is great. I love seeing people walk out with them. We're not making, we're not making profits all this. They gave us a half price deal. You're going to find them the, the cheapest you can find them anywhere here. So however many copies are less, let's, let's sell them out and uh, take them home and, and dig deeper uh, into this. So I was thinking about that scene this week from Chronicles and Narnia, the first book, uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, or however order you read them. I know that's a vicious debate. Uh, Lucy and Mr. Beaver. And Lucy, Aslan is the personification of Jesus. And Lucy's not met Aslan. She's only heard about him. And she says, Mr. Beaver, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver's like, ha, 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 he's not safe, but he's good. But he's good. And as we get into this series, I can feel it in the room. I don't know if you can when, we, when we're in these emotions. And I've gotten texts from people and emails from people reading the book, hearing the messages like, they're excited and troubled. <laughs> kind of like starting to think of God in a new way. Like I can't control this God like I thought I could. And good, good. But one of our boundary markers is, as we get into these emotions of God and things that we don't understand that are mysterious is that God is always good. God is always good. God is always good. Holy Spirit, we just pray that you would be in this room right now. Uh, my words are me. <laughs> they are what they are. Uh, but you are the one who moves and shakes and shapes and changes. That causes repentance and causes us new life internally. That reforms us and reshapes us and remakes us and remodels us like this building. You do that in our lives. So we pray that you would do that this morning. We pray that you would have your way with us, that you'd powerfully be moving in this room this morning as we talk about the emotion of sadness and sorrow. Uh, we pray that you would remake us daily into the image of your son, Jesus, uh, for your name's sake and for the sake of the world. And all God's people said, let's define sorrow. Dr. Lamb in, his, in the book defines it this way. Sorrow, sadness, I'm using them interchangeably. Sorrow is a feeling an emotional response caused by a negative circumstance, pain, sin, oppression, death, things are not as they should be, prompting sadness. It's interesting he used uh, part of the quote from Dr. Cornelius Plantiga that we used the first week to define sin. Sin means things are not as they should be. So Dr. Lamb says things are not as they should be, prompting sadness. Uh, this last, I don't think it was, no, it wasn't this last Friday, the Friday before time. Um, I got to spend all day with Seth and three Jesus-following therapists, uh, Tristan Collins and uh, Ken Logan, who's my personal therapist, and Carolyn Liu, who's over there somewhere. Hi, Carolyn. Part of our church. 
Um, so we, we promised we'd be recording these podcasts that deal less with the emotions of God and more of our emotions. And so we'll be releasing those. The first one with Tristan Collins releases tomorrow. And it's awesome. You will love them. Um, for me, it was like a free day of therapy. It was awesome. I was like, so I've got a friend that I need to ask a question for. <laughs> so check those out. Uh, if you're on our email list like that, um, we'll, we'll point you in the right direction. Uh, I'm going to talk uh, a lot about some things that Tristan said today, and she is the first podcast that we release. Uh, Tristan and her husband, John, who's co-founded the Bible Project, and another friend wrote a book called Why Emotions Matter. It's really excellent. I encourage you to check it out. And Tristan uh, uses an analogy. I don't know that it's her own analogy in the therapy world. Maybe it's common, but it was the first time I had heard it. It was helpful to me that our emotions are like a dashboard on a car. So you look up on your dashboard, if you have a newer car, which I don't, but some of you who have a car newer than the 2005 Prius probably have more bells and whistles, but your dashboard's increasingly telling you everything that's going on with the car. Take it in, oil change, you need gas, you're going this fast, here's the cabin temperature, all those kind of things. It's crazy. That's how our emotions operate. When we feel certain emotions, it signals something is going on with us. It's a, it's, it's a simple concept, but it was really helpful for me. Tristan said that sadness is telling us on the dashboard of our life that something needs to heal, that something is, is torn and something is broken, maybe in the world, maybe in your relationships, maybe it's something you can do nothing about, maybe it's sadness that will linger, maybe it's stuff that you can do something about. So sadness is indicating, hey, something needs to heal. She said sadness is the emotion that lingers the longest, especially if we don't deal with it. And sadness feels to our body heavy. Like when you're experiencing deep sadness, it's like you're carrying a burden. You're just heavy. Also, sadness uh, is, is, operates the same way that physical pain operates in our body. When you're feeling physical pain, if you've broken a bone or sprained an ankle or you have a cut or a sore that's getting infected, your body emits physical pain to tell you, pay attention. <laughs> if you don't pay attention, it's going to get worse. And that way, pain can be a gift. Uh, sadness operates the same way. It's telling us to pay attention. Something is torn. Something is broken. Something needs healing. Pay attention so it doesn't get worse. Those are all really helpful things to me. Uh, sadness, like shame, is one of our most vulnerable emotions when we experience it. We feel it fully in our bodies. If you don't like weeping, you're probably not going to like the Bible very much. There's lots of weeping in the Bible. Uh, Moses weeps. Joseph weeps seven times. David, I just lose count. He's just weeping all the time. <laughs> Uh, Hezekiah weeps, Elisha weeps, Josiah weeps, Ezra weeps. Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. Peter weeps, the Ephesian elders weeps, John weeps, and of course, God weeps. In Isaiah, the prophet, there's an instance where uh, God is talking about the nation of Moab, and uh, there's judgment coming on them, and yet God is, is sad. Literally, the line that Isaiah uses in the Hebrew says that God drenches them with tears, drenches them with tears. Ezekiel 6 says this, then in the nations where they have been carried captive, God's talking about his people that he loves, those who escape will remember me, how I have been grieved 
by their adulterous hearts, which have turned away from me, and by their eyes, which have lusted after their idols. They will loathe themselves for the evil they have done and for all their detestable practices. That Hebrew word for grieve can be translated hurt, broken, crushed, anguished. And of course, Jesus wept. Jesus wept, as we heard. Uh, that little verse is so powerful. It's one of the, if you grew up in church, the joke is always, if you need to start Bible memorization, start there, right? You're just like, I got it. I'm done. Uh, I've memorized it. But there's so much power in those two words. What does God look like? God looks like Jesus. God looks like Jesus, and Jesus wept. The context for that verse is John 11 in John's gospel. We're getting towards the end, even though it's chapter 11. John spends a lot on the latter week, on the last week. And Jesus is, it's, it's heating up, and the crucifixion is coming. And Jesus is a little town, maybe eight to 10 miles away from Jerusalem with his disciples. And Bethany is the scene of this story. Bethany is about a mile and a half outside of Jerusalem. And Bethany was kind of Jesus' home base for a lot of things. It's the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. They could have been family. Certainly, Lazarus was probably Jesus' best friend. And so Lazarus gets sick. We don't know with what, but it's very serious. And they send for Jesus, the sisters do, saying, come quickly. We know what you can do. We've seen you do it. And Jesus essentially gives them the hand and says, no, because Jesus has got a greater story that's going to unfold. So Lazarus passes away, is being put in the tomb. And Jesus comes into Bethany in the midst of chaotic mourning. And so when you mourned back in the first century, uh, it was very physical, very visceral, very loud. You would actually be required to hire at least two professional mourners. Rich people hired a lot more. So I don't know. I don't know how, how wealthy they were. But Jesus is coming in a scene where not only people are legitimately crying, but there's professional mourners just wailing and ripping a clothes. And they would play like dirgy, loud music. It's just like a scene of chaos and grief and sadness. And Jesus walks in, and Jesus is really emotional. Jesus is fully human and fully God. He's lost his best friend, possibly. And John uses very emotive terms. He tells us this little phrase in the Greek that he is deeply troubled in his spirit. He says it twice. That word in, in, in ancient Greek was also used for the snorting of an angry war horse. It's really emotive. Like it's just gutting Jesus. And then we have these words as Jesus kind of approaches the tomb. I kind of envision it as kind of like the old Western showdowns. Jesus in the tomb. Jesus in death. And as Jesus is standing there, knowing what he's about to do, it says Jesus wept. He took time. He took time to pay attention to his emotions, to grieve. And that word in the Greek for wept is loud wailing. Jesus was a, a sloppy mess. So if real men don't cry, Jesus, I guess, wasn't a real man. So Jesus wept. What does God look like? God looks like Jesus. Why does God weep? Because of sin and evil, because of this destruction of sin and evil in the world. Things that we don't choose that are beyond us, but things very much that this guy chooses, and with all due respect, you choose to walk away from God that wreaks havoc in our lives. And it deforms us as God's good creation. I think of it uh, like artists making artwork. Our artists over here have been hard at work since the beginning of the series, taking answers, which you'll participate in again today, and weaving them into this beautiful mosaic. I think it's beautiful. 
I love art. My wife's an artist. My wife's right over there. She makes all kind of beautiful art. And I can't imagine as someone who doesn't make that kind of art how much of yourself is invested in that. And let's just say something horrific happened and someone ran up on the stage and they cleared out and they just took a knife and shredded that painting. What would there be a gasp? Right? We, my wife's a potter and sometimes I'll preach and she throws pots on stage. And we had planned this years ago at a church we were doing and she threw this beautiful pot and then I had a certain word I would say and when I said it, she crushed it. And there was just, <gasps> and it was all planned. And then she began to rebuild it, you know. You could imagine the sermon. When we, a couple of years ago, I forget what year it was, but um, Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris began to born. Remember that? And I don't know if you've been there before, but it it's, it's, was built in, I think, 1163. It took 100 years. 12 million people visited a year. It's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. And then this fire started and began ravaging it. And whether you've been there or not, or whether you know, I think collectively the world was mourning. We were sad because we saw this incredible, how is that going to be reclaimed? Like, ah, that's what's happening. That's, what, that, that's, what, that's God's heart. You know, us parents, my parents said to me when I was young, when they would punish you, they said, this hurts me more than it hurts you. I'm like, whatever. <laughs> and now I find myself saying those things to, to my kids. It is true. That's what God says to a degree we can't even fathom. We can't even fathom. Paul says in Ephesians that we are God's poema is the Greek word, his workmanship. You, you might need to hear this morning, you are God's piece of art. Nothing is like you. God's fashioning you and making you and remaking you. You are good and beautiful and true. God's at work in your life. And when evil comes in and when we invite it in and we choose it in, it deforms that. It's more work God has to do to remake us. And he will do that work. But his father's heart, his artist's heart, his, his God heart grieves and is sad. And it's fitting. It's, I think it's totally fitting. So far, this might be the most depressing Mother's Day message ever. <laughs> It'll get better. It'll ramp up from here. So we like to say around here, and we mean it, I hope, um, we love to teach the word. We try to be faithful to that. But we get to a point where we're just spinning our wheels if we're giving you a lot of knowledge. And so we, we ask, so what? So what? So what? So what with God's sadness and Notre Dame and all the stuff you just said? So what, John? What does that mean for me? Well, a couple things. I always share things that mean something to me. I hope that they're helpful in some way. A couple thoughts. Uh, we should pay attention to our sadness. If our sadness is the check engine light, <laughs> something's about to blow, something's not going well, something needs to, we should pay attention to it. David Lamb says that feeling sadness is the cost of being emotionally alive. It's the cost of being emotionally alive. Uh, going back to Tristan's book, and, and I'll increasing when I talk about these things, quote, therapist, because I am not a therapist, I'm a pastor. So that, those lines need to be firm. And so uh, I'll quote a little more than I do today because I want to quote people that know what they're talking about. So I'm sure this is not an exhaustive list, but this is from her book on sadness, Possible Signs of Sadness. I hope you're introspective this morning. I hope you're like, yeah, I want to know if I'm sad or not. Uh, Tristan says in the body, it, it, it can feel heavy. Uh, you can cry more than normal or have the urge to cry. You can feel a tightness in your chest or your throat. You can feel tired and sluggish. You can have lowered body temperature, loss of appetite, slash eating junk food, 
you can eat junk food and be happy too, I would imagine, but uh, that could be a side of sadness. Uh, development of insomnia and depression. In our behaviors, we can become quiet and withdrawn. We can overcompensate with happy, uh, an, a happy energetic front. There are also, these aren't necessarily negative things, but one of the more uh, interesting aspects of when you're, when you're sad, you're often able to remember things more clearly and see the bigger picture. It's interesting. Uh, you become often more empathetic and more compassionate. So these are just signs as we're like paying attention. Am I sad? What's going on with me? It's really important to note, because I think the church has done a, a pretty horrific job with this, differentiating between uh, sadness, and with all due respect, I think we're all sad. I think we're all sad to a degree. I think that's part of being human in a fallen world. Between that and what I will call clinical depression, um, it's important to different. And there may be some people this morning that you're not sure, and you're like, I'm not sure. I, I'm pretty sure I'm sad. I don't know if, I've, if I'm clinically depressed. And so again, let me quote uh, Tristan, because um, I don't know what I'm talking about. And this is what she says. If you feel stuck in an unchanging and heavy season of sadness, there's a chance it's depression instead. Clinical depression is often a physiological issue. It can be a chemical imbalance in your body that's due to a thyroid problem, seasonal affective disorder, postpartum hormone imbalances, vitamin deficiency, or other problems. It can run in families. Depression can be initially sparked by a season of sadness or it can emerge on its own. It feels like sadness, sometimes deep, hopeless, drowning sadness, but treating it like sadness won't make it go away. People who are experiencing clinical depression need professional care, which might include medication or hormone supplementation to help reestablish equilibrium. Therapy can also be effective for building new neural pathways and managing the effects of depression. It's also essential to have healthy, supportive relationships if you think you might be experiencing depression, please consider seeing a counselor or doctor. I would say a hearty amen to that. The church has not done a good job with this. And um, I, I think it's the same, I and mean, we have the brain studies now. I think it's the same as like, if somebody has a broken leg and you're telling them to get up and run faster. It's like, come on, <laughs> right? I mean, there, there's stuff going on that, that can become clinical that needs professional medical care. And that's all part of God's good plan for your life. And so it's safe, it's brave uh, to say, I don't know, I wanna talk with somebody and we can help connect you uh, with the right people. Um, I think being part of a community as we pay attention to sadness is also, what a gift. So I hope that you're in some sort of a community, whether it be friendships, family, roommates, uh, classmates at school, you're on a sports team, people that care enough to notice and watch. And maybe you're thinking through yourself today, but maybe you're also thinking through people you do life with. And you're like, huh. Essentially, I've seen these behavior changes. And I would just encourage you, not in a judgy way, in a very compassionate, loving way, to look for the window and pray about it and wait for the time to just look them in the eye with tenderness and say, are you sad? And, and what can I do? What can I do to help you? That's where we form a Jesus-following community that can be helpful. Uh, there's a proverb that says, shared joy is double joy and shared sorrow is half sorrow. I love that. Doing life in community uh, will strengthen our joy and lessen our sorrow. So what? So we need to pay attention. We also need to share our tears. Some of you, probably most of us today, walked in with weight, with some sadness. Like in any given two-month stretch coming anywhere, we're going to be not in good places some days. And yet we have this weird thing in church communities where you walk in the door and maybe me greeting you or somebody else, and I was like, hey, how you doing? And you respond, right, with a big smiley face. 
I'm not saying you're being fake or manufacturing. It's just like that's how we feel we're supposed to socially show up at church. I think, pondering this, I think it comes back to bad theology, as a lot of stuff does, that we feel like when we admit that we're sad or we're struggling, we're having a hard time, that equates to not having faith in God. And just hear from me, that's not true. (laughs) I would say the very opposite is true. I would say people who have the courage to answer honestly when things aren't going right are the most courageous, faith-filled people I know. And there's a couple of people in my life that are going through some hard, challenging times, and I've been sad the last couple of weeks. That's just truthful. It's been a difficult couple of weeks for me. And uh, I have, I've tried to practice that even writing this message. I hope those of you who have done this, I hope I've been faithful in this. But I've had friends that regularly text me or ask, how are you doing? I'm like, not great. Not great. And that can be awkward. <laughs> it can be. But the good friends, you know what they do? The ones who text me, they ask, they call me then right away. They call me. And they say, okay, let's, let's talk about that. You know, you need community. Yeah, I do. And I need perspective. And hopefully I'm doing that good work too. So I think we need to share our tears as we do so. It's helpful for us, but I think it also cultivates an authentic Jesus community that we can be ourselves. And it's okay just to show up as us and be a hot mess if we need to be so. It should be that. Uh, Jesus is the one that says, blessed are those who mourn. And with all due respect, gents, and, and I know there's always exceptions to these gender things, I think the ladies and the women in our midst uh, do far better at this. I think we can learn from them. I mean, clinically, they've studied it. Women, uh, you cry 3.5 times a month, men 1.9. So you're way ahead of us. You cry better. You're, you're better weepers. I think a lot of us learned how to weep and express ourselves from our moms. So for all the other things we learned from you moms, thank you for that. And dudes, I don't want to harp on this. I love you. I'm one of you. But, but men, we struggle with this. I think a lot of it is it's been put on us. And I'm trying to free us a little bit this morning from this toxic masculinity culture that we built. It's not biblical. It's not godly. And one of the leading causes of death in men is depression and suicide. Men use drugs and alcohol at a much higher rate than females. And men are much less likely to go get help. So men, come see me if you need to see me. <laughs> like, we need to do better on learning how to share our tears. That idea made me think of one of my favorite movies. Uh, Mike, this is Mike's fault because he started talking about all these movies from the 80s. I think this is one from the 90s. If you haven't seen this, I think it has some pretty hearty language in it. If that bothers you, I wouldn't watch this. But other than that, it's a great film. Uh, Goodwill Hunting. Goodwill Hunting. It has Matt Damon and Robin Williams in it. It was nominated for a bunch of Oscars. Uh, Matt Damon, he's younger, he plays a guy, Will, who grew up in Southie Boston, which is a very poor uh, area of Boston, it's kind of nitty gritty, you know, make it on your own, and he grew up uh, alone, abused physically and emotionally, and we meet him in the film when he's in his 20s, and uh, he's very angry, very angry, that's how we mask our sadness oftentimes is with anger, and yet he's also a genius. He's a mathematical genius. And so he kind of gets into MIT, and he's even a mathematical genius by MIT standards, but he's just a jerk, and he's violent, and he hasn't dealt with his sadness and his grief, and you can't blame the kid. And so if something violent happens, he's being forced into therapy, or he's kicked out of the program, and his therapist is Robin Williams' character, Sean. And Sean also grew up in Southie, so they have some connection points over their heritage in a rough-and-tumble neighborhood. And the film is really about their journey together. And there's other characters and this and that, Ben Affleck's in it. And, 
Uh, but it's essentially about it. And so my favorite scene, you may have a different favorite scene, is near the end of the movie. And Robin Williams, is, is, is Will's therapist, has a folder that has his history kind of growing up in foster care. And it has pictures in it of the physical abuse that he experienced. And he tells him that he has it. And he goes, oh, you've seen the pictures? He's like, yeah. He's like, I'm sorry. He's like, yeah, it's, it's okay. It's okay. And he's like looking down. And then there's this powerful moment. I watched, I watched it the other day, and I counted. And 10 times in a row, as he moves slowly towards him, he's like, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's masterful acting because, you know, Matt Damon's like, I, I know, I know. And then he begins to get angry. Dude, I know. Like, shut up. Like, stop it. And then he shoves him, and then he falls into his arms weeping. I'm just like, yes, that. That, that's courage. That's good. God weeps. We should weep too. God weeps and we should weep too. The Psalms, as I'm sure if you've been following along the series, provide us with tools for this. We talked about with hate and anger, there's these weird psalms that are disturbing called imprecatory psalms where you just kind of rant and yell and curse your enemies and just like, I don't even know what to do with those, but I wrote one for you if you remember. We read it. It's like uncomfortable, but we're praying out those emotions and entrusting them to a God who is good. And the psalms also have this psalm called lament to pray out our sadness and our grief. Eugene Peterson he thought that 70% of our psalms, 70% of our prayer book were laments. You don't think God knows that we need to grieve? God gives us tools to grieve and to do it well in a holy and edify and wholesome way so that we can heal and the world can heal. Anglican author and priest Tish Warren, she's a remarkable author. She says this, God, speaking of Jesus, God himself took time to grieve. He's no stranger to the weight of heartbreak and horror to the ache of swollen eyes that have cried so long they've run out of tears. He did not numb himself or downplay the losses. He never gave a pat answer. God was and remains shockingly emotionally alive. Nicholas Wolterstorff, he's a philosopher from Yale and uh, he's brilliant in his field. He's a follower of Jesus and he's written, most of his life's work is on uh, God in the midst of suffering, God in the midst of sadness, and it's just beautiful, thoughtful stuff. And he, he had to rethink everything, though, when his son, at age 22, tragically died in a climbing accident. And he was thrown. He said, I don't know that I believe in his stuff anymore. I don't know what to do with it. He was an emotional wreck. But he did what the Psalms show us to do. He said, I don't know to do anything else but just write out my grief, write out my questions for God, on the heart of God for my boy. Why? I'm sad. And he ended up eventually publishing his journal. It's raw. It's visceral. It's beautiful. It's called Lament for a Son. I often give it to people who are going through really difficult losses. And this is one of my favorite quotes from that book. He, he says, blessed are those who mourn, quoting Jesus. What can that mean? <laughs> Why does Jesus hail the mourners of the world? Why cheer tears? It must be that character belongs, that, that character belongs to the life of his realm. Who then are the mourners? This is really beautiful. The mourners are those who have caught a glimpse of God's new day and who ache with all their being for that day's coming. 
and who break out into tears when confronted with its absence. The mourners among us are aching visionaries. As I was going through this message, and next week we'll talk about joy, I read in a couple places that uh, joy is the opposite of sorrow. And I was like, no, that can't be right. <laughs> I just, like, I've read too much of my Bible to know that that's, that can't be right. So I became really like obsessed this week, is probably the right term, with like, how do these things fit together? I was convinced that biblically and realistically, joy and sorrow feed off each other in some way. They're intermingled. They're connected in some way. I couldn't break through. I couldn't figure it out. Here's a couple examples that made maybe even dive deeper from Scripture. Even in laughter, the heart may ache, and rejoicing may end in grief. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. This is from Ezra, where they're kind of finding the Bible again and reading it after like two centuries. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sounds of weeping, because the people made so much noise, and the sound was heard from far away. And then Jesus in John 16, you will grieve but your grief will turn to joy. I was like, what do I do with that? I don't understand this. How are these two things connected? Because they're not opposites. I read C.S. Lewis. He writes a lot about joy. And C.S. Lewis says that joy has to be sharply distinguished from pleasure and happiness. It's something other that it comes from God. I'm like, yes, yes. I went to Dallas Willard because he's brilliant. Dallas Willard says that joy is a pervasive sense of well-being infused with hope because of the goodness of God. And then I came upon a, a piece of poetry. It's always the artist who solve it for us, I think. God bless the artist. And this poet, uh, Khalil Gibran, you may know his work. He's a famous poet. Uh, I read this, the name of the, the poem, read it later, is Joy and Sorrow. Let me read a little piece, and it came together for me. I was like, yes. Here's his poem. Then a woman said, speak to us of joy and sorrow. And he answered, your joy is your sorrow unmasked. And the self-same well from which your laughter rises was oftentimes filled with your tears. How else can it be? The deeper that sorrow carves into your being, the more joy you can contain. Is not the cup that holds your wine the very cup that was burned in the potter's oven? And is not the lute that soothes your spirit the very wood that was hollowed with knives? When you are joyous, look deep in your heart and you shall find it is only that which has given you sorrow that is giving you joy. When you are sorrowful, look again in your heart, and you'll see that in truth you are weeping for that which has been your delight. Some of you say, joy is greater than sorrow, and others say, nay, sorrow is the greater. But I say unto you, they are inseparable. And here's, here's how I'll say it. Sadness, and think about when you last cried, think about your sadness. Sadness carves out a space for greater joy. Sorrow carves out sadness. If we, if we pay attention to it and we share it, it carves out this deep reservoir for greater joy. Frederick Buechner said that, that, that laughter and tears come from the same place. Think of it this way. I challenge you. Think about the most joyous person you know. Not the happiest, not the person that's surrounded with life's pleasures, that's vacuous and fleeting. The most joyous person you know, and I guarantee you, they've gone through a lot of sadness and sorrow. And they've paid attention to it. And by God's grace, the power of the Holy Spirit, 
They've shared it and invited people into it. And it's carved out this deep reservoir for joy. That's the hope. That's where they come together. I think I'm right. I'm still working it out. But I, I think that it sounds right. When I started at New Hope eight years ago, it, it was rough. Many of you weren't around, but church wasn't in great shape. I probably wasn't in great shape. My family was back east. It was stressful. The church was kind of a, a mess. And it was lonely, and it was hard those first couple months. Um, and I remember, I, I could never have told you this then because I was the new pastor, but I didn't want to show up and preach on Sunday. I'm just like, oh, geez, you know, this place. And I remember I'd actually a lot of Sundays weep on the way to preaching. And uh, this album came out by Josh Garrels that year and has a song called Morning Light. And I used to weep as I listened to this song on the way to New Hope many Sundays. And it says this, one day it all falls down, it breaks our heart, and it breaks our crown. It brings us down where we see it's going to be all right. So turn around and let back in the light. And joy will come like a birdie in the morning sun. And all will be made well once again. Here's the thing I want to leave you with. God shares our sadness. God shares our sadness. God's not some distant God way up there that looks down at our Grief and our sadness is like, what odd creatures I created. God's more sad than we are. Think of it that way. God sees the same thing. His heart breaks for the same things. And when we experience sadness, God is close. I would say it, the sadder we are, the closer God is. The psalmist says, the Lord is close to the broken heart and saves those who are crushed in spirit. If you're sad today, God is near King David says the good shepherd walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death. We, uh, we love reading the Chronicles of Narnia to our kids. If you haven't done that, I encourage you to. I read them through with Eden years ago, and we're doing, I'm doing it with Jubilee right now. And one of the, the lesser-known books is The Horse and the Boy. And it focuses on a character named Shasta, who is ripped from his home and taken away and enslaved. He has a horrible life. He ends up escaping. He's trying to make his way back home. And... He finds some new friends, and it's going better for a while, and then the new friends disappear. He gets lost, and it comes to this point in the story. It's a really pivotal point where Shasta is alone in these dark woods on a horse, all alone, or he thinks he's all alone. It's very foggy. He doesn't know who he is or where he's from, and he literally says this quote, I do think that I must be the most unfortunate boy that ever lived in the whole world. I've felt that way sometimes, right? You've probably felt that way. And then out of the fog, he hears a voice, and Aslan is there the whole time. Aslan's walking with him. There's an artist named Amy Grimes, and she painted this scene, and we, we bought it for Eden. It's hanging in her room. And Aslan, and some of you need to hear this, Aslan, out of the fog, says, tell me your sorrows. Tell me your sorrows. It's okay. I'm walking with you. You're not alone. The sadder we are, the closer God is. And the great promise of Scripture, as we turn to the last book, is that God will wipe away these tears. God will wipe away every tear. Our tears, they have an expiration date. As Tolkien says, everything sad will be made untrue. As Julian Norwich, the great mystic from the 14th century, as she prayed and had a vision from God in her sorrow, she heard God say to her, all shall be well. 
and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. I want to give you a gift this morning of, of, of silence, and I know this is uncomfortable for some of you, sorry. Well, we're going to give you about two minutes. In my notes here, it just says space for sadness. <laughs> and we're going to ask you to respond coming out of that to a question, uh, what makes you sad? What are you sad about? Trust me, you're sad. <laughs> if you're not sad, you're either lying to yourself or not paying attention, right? But sometimes we need space. We live life so noisy, so on the go that we don't give the Holy Spirit space to speak to us. So I'm gonna pray a little prayer over us and then we're gonna be quiet for two minutes as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. And uh, if you don't know what to do, just listen. I think we need to listen to God a lot more. If you don't think you're sad, just listen. Invite the Holy Spirit in to show you your sorrows or respond to Aslan's words, tell God your sorrows. I've tried in my own prayer life, just start to talk to God more like he's a buddy and a friend, which he is. Just talk with him, what he's sad about. He knows already. So we're gonna give you a space uh, for sadness, about two minutes of quiet, and uh, let me pray over us. Holy Spirit, uh, we just know that you're with us in the room. You're always with us. You're always at work, even while we sleep, forming us and remaking us, teaching us to be kind to ourselves and others and become more human, to become more like Christ. Uh, We're sad. You're sad. (laughs) There's lots to be sad about, and yet there's lots to be hopeful for as well and joyful. And that's hard for us as humans to figure out how all those things fit together. And I just pray right now, uh, Holy Spirit, that you would have your way with each of us, that if there's any barrier blocking our minds and our hearts from your activity in our lives right now, that you would remove it. You protect this space right now from the evil one and that you would allow us to see clearly our sadness. And more importantly, that you would allow us to see that you're with us right in the midst of that, making all things new. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.